Thank you, President Dockery, for inviting me to deliver this, this Founders Day message. It's quite an honor. It's also been a great honor to follow you as our interim president. Uh, I want to thank my family, church members, my pastor and best friend, Mark Forrest, and my many friends, including the recipients of the Carroll and Scarborough Awards. Uh, we are blessed to have you uh, among the many donors to Southwestern Seminary. Proverbs 22:28 says, don't move an ancient boundary marker that your fathers set up. And our fathers placed a three-sided boundary marker now buried under the refuse of a century. If we recall and reclaim our heritage, God may yet revive us. Lord, this world is yours. Your churches, your church is yours. And Lord, the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary is yours. Do with us as you will. Amen. Soul-winning evangelical Baptists. This is the identity of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. The theological heritage of this seminary is threefold. We are evangelical in doctrine, Baptist in structure or body, if you will, with a heart for soul-winning, practical Christianity. I'd like to demonstrate this thesis through interaction with the seminary's founders, particularly its first two presidents, via the insights of James Leo Garrett, Jr., the most knowledgeable Baptist theologian, it's been said, Garrett came here in 1945, started teaching in 49, refounded the journal in 58, and chaired the committee authorizing the seminary's official history. Garrett delivered two Founders Day addresses. And in the second, he noted our faculty had published some 700 volumes, a huge scholarly contribution from the then world's largest freestanding theological school. Now, as a student, he was passionate for youth and revival. And he called our first great systematic theologian my principal mentor. He lauded our first great ethicist for shaping the conscience of his students and of Southern Baptists on the issue of race. And he praised our second president's emphases upon soul-winning evangelism and Baptist cooperancy. He met another young minister, also training here. Yes, women have been an integral part of this community from its foundation. And through 67 years of marriage and a shared half-century of service to Southwestern, James Leo and Murda Ann Garrett raised three sons and mentored students in their home, including my wife Karen and me. Leo's careful scholarship contributed massively to theology, even earning a second PhD at Harvard. Spiritually, he credited a mission trip to India and the civil rights movement for pushing him to, quote, recover my priesthood. His advocacy of the biblical historical Baptist doctrine of universal priesthood influenced me to write both a master's thesis and a doctoral dissertation on that non-negotiable Baptist doctrine. Now, while he engaged in ecumenical dialogue, Garrett heartily advanced only 
two traditions, the Believer's Church and Evangelicalism. The titles of Garrett's two great books highlight the character of Southwestern's theology. Uh, one was entitled Systematic Theology, Biblical, Historical, and Evangelical. And the second was Baptist Theology, a four-century study. A Southern Seminary president was the first to call Garrett an evangelical theologian, uh, noting his divergence from the mainline Louisville worldview. Now, Garrett's emphases upon being evangelical and Baptist came from Southwestern Seminary and returned to Southwestern Seminary. First of all, let's look at our evangelical faith. The seminary grew out of the evangelical awakenings. Robert Baker said the first awakening gave Southwestern a warm-hearted, evangelistic, biblical, effective spirituality, while the second awakening prompted the development of structural patterns in ministry. Garrett said three areas of doctrinal emphasis differentiate evangelicals. Notice these. The nature and necessity of justification or regeneration or salvation, the nature and supreme authority of the Bible, and the deity of Jesus Christ together with certain events of his holy history, namely virginal conception, atoning death, bodily resurrection, and second coming. Now, the founding president's trustees and faculty of Southwestern taught these three marks of evangelical identity. Regarding the person and work of Christ, our first president, Benajah Harvey Carroll, outlined the requirements for trustees, faculty, and graduates. The trustees and faculty were required to subscribe and not seriously depart from the thoroughly evangelical New Hampshire Confession. Note Carol's evangelical requirement for the student. There should be a clear expression of his views concerning the Holy Scriptures, their integrity, their inspiration, concerning sin and the fall of man, concerning the person of our Lord as both God and man, his vicarious expiation, making the cross the central fact of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity for it in regeneration and sanctification in view of man's depravity. In 1921, the faculty crafted a seven-article doctrinal statement, and it began with belief in the Bible as the Word of God. It repudiated the rationalistic method of dealing with the Bible and evolutionary theory, and it affirmed the Genesis account. Their version of the fundamentals of Christianity corroborates the holy history of Christ described by Garrett. Regarding scripture, Lee Rutland Scarborough, our second president, promised at his inauguration to keep the school in a straight path. He said, we are not with nor for those who would have a scrapbook Bible. We take Christ's endorsement of the Old Testament and receive the New Testament as Paul, the Holy Spirit, and the fathers have handed it down to us. We believe it is God-breathed and binding upon conscience and conduct, and is our only ultimate and infallible authority touching life and destiny. George Washington Truett, the leading trustee during our seminary's first four decades, also considered the inspiration of the Bible a settled matter. But concerned for true speech, Truett warned against mere rhetoric, 
Scripture can also be lost, he said, through neglect, substitution, mutilation, or disobedience. Regarding their emphasis on salvation, Garrett distinguished two groups of evangelicals. Number one were the evangelicals within the Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican traditions, and they tend to emphasize and articulate the Reformation doctrine of justification by grace through faith and not on the basis of works. But secondly, present-day evangelicals who have been influenced by the Anabaptist, the Pietistic, and or the Wesleyan traditions tend to express how sinful human beings may be rightly related to God by the concept of regeneration or being born again by the Holy Spirit. Now, Southwestern's founders strongly advocated the second soteriology. They affirmed the first, but they advocated the second. These revivalists emphasized the new birth and personal conversion. They proclaimed far and wide, you must be born again. They went on a quest for souls, a search for souls. They required personal living faith in a living Lord. Our first president was converted in a Methodist camp meeting. Our first great systematic theologian was converted in a Methodist revival. And he taught Christians to depend upon the Holy Spirit to win souls to Christ. Our second president wanted ministers marked by that vibrant spirituality. Southwestern was, in his words, a warm incubator for the hatching out of live, burning, shining preachers of the gospel with souls hot with zeal and full of power. Such vital faith generates moral change. Scarborough emphasized the true stamp of character. He lamented, and I quote, how the cause of Christ had been set back by the betrayal of Judas's and other ministerial defaults in character and conduct. And speaking through time, Scarborough gives us this principle. He said, let us see to it that our diplomas are a guarantee of character as well as a stamp of scholarship. The name Southwesterner must ensure evangelical integrity. Number two, our soul-winning passion. I wish our provost were here preaching this because he's much more qualified than I. Carol's vision, perceived on a fast train rushing through the panhandle, conveyed the heartbeat of our seminary. He cried, our onlooking Lord is still moved with compassion for the multitudes because they are distressed and scattered as sheep not having a shepherd. Our moral responsibility here is to train preachers of the saving gospel. It is, he wrote, our duty to pray for more laborers. It is our duty and theirs to train them for efficient service. Carroll classified Baptists with populist Methodists against scholastic Presbyterians. He wrote, we need great scholars, but a thousandfold greater need is a multitude of preachers, not professors. We need fewer Malcolm Yarnells. <laughs> Seriously. Preachers who know the English Bible and who scorn not simple folk, who know how to get down off the theological and scholastic stilts and preach with heart power to plain people a simple old-time gospel. Our students, he said, should be drilled in the knowledge that the unction of the Holy Spirit and heart power constitute the elements of ministerial force. And Carol led the faculty to discipline two scholars 
who tried to lessen our evangelistic and vernacular Bible curricula. Carroll saw Southern Seminary suffer under scholars, so he researched how heterodoxy arose in Orthodox schools. Long before the conservative resurgence, Carroll crafted the Southwestern method for safeguarding an evangelical school. He understood the problem was not merely of mind, but of will. We need hearts, he said. The time needs hearts, tis tired of head. Before the religion of the heart, learning and intellect stand abashed. That is a holy of holies, open to the poorest and meanest, into which these enter not. They may become its sentinels and outside ministers. It can never become theirs. He said, we need to love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, out of a faith unfeigned, often revealed to babes and often hidden from the wise and learned. We must have hearts, hearts compelled by the living God's compassion for this world, hearts emboldened with the good news that his son is risen, hearts that invite sinners to repent, believe, and be born again by the Spirit, hearts which speak truth always with love. We need hearts passionate for people, not against people. The title of Southwestern's most influential book summarizes the spirit, with Christ after the lost. Our founders were with the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. With this Christ who left the fold so that he might find the lost sheep and bring her home. With this spirit who alone convicts and regenerates the sinner by faith. Our founders were not culture warriors set against the world in spite. They were militant evangelists going after the lost in love. They pursued the world to win it to a living faith and a living Lord. This is the Southwestern way. Consumed with love for God's world. Scarborough continued teaching even as he sacrificed his life to build this seminary and this convention. His efforts and those of his 8,000 students over three decades transformed the Southern Baptist Convention. Scarborough's Southwestern led our denomination into its greatest growth. Lee Rutland Scarborough was born in Colfax, Louisiana. Noted for his love for the lost, he felt life deeply. With shocking vulnerability, he asked asked his sister to pray for him in his orphanage after their mother's death. He had a need for the females in his family to pray for him. He requested prayer for his missionary travels in a treasured letter to his cousin, Maud Searcy, my wife's paternal grandmother. Lee's responsibilities took him from the family he loved and he needed prayer. Why would a sensitive man embrace pain? He answered, out of what Christ put in me when he saved me came a hunger and a passionate longing for the salvation of others. Roy Fish agreed. Scarborough's greatest contribution, he said, was the spirit he imparted to the institution and the place he won for it in the hearts of Southern Baptists and Baptists to the end of the earth. The Southwestern spirit The Southwestern heart is a warm-hearted evangelism calling everyone to personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Carol told him, keep the seminary lashed to the cross. 
The cross centers our evangelical faith in the gracious atoning work of our Savior. To keep it highlights our duty to obey his commission and being lashed embraces the pain. We mentor followers of Jesus in heart, thought, and deed. Southwesterners go with Christ's heart after lost people in this big world. This is the spirit I caught as a terribly introverted young student here. God called me to be a teacher, and Leo Garrett called me to follow in his steps. But God told me in an Old Testament elective, I must be a preacher to become a teacher of preachers. And God taught me through Roy Fish to be filled with the Spirit and to find unparalleled joy in leading people to Christ. I have never had any greater joy than when someone repeats the words that I'm trying to give them and help them to embrace with their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to be born again. I also learned from my Bible, preaching, history, worship, and education professors of the pain of theological education. I learned to carry the teacher's cross by watching my mentors, then my colleagues, suffer like our Lord. Seminary faculty, you don't know this, but seminary faculty suffer in ways hidden from the public. Why do they suffer in silence? Because they have a call from God. We mentor soul winners, preachers, practitioners. We convey the heart of the crucified and resurrected Lord for the lost sheep. The identity of Southwestern's theology is evangelical, but it is evangelical of a particular type. Our evangelicalism is a God-given, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, Bible-preaching, people-loving, heart-transforming, passion-embracing, thoroughly moral, revivalistic type of evangelicalism. In short, Southwesterners are soul-winning evangelicals. The Southwesterners don't merely confess the gospel from our heads. We passionately preach the gospel from our hearts. Carol and Scarborough were convinced that evangelism preserves evangelical theology. They wrote, we believe that the spiritual power of soul winning lives in the souls of the preachers. And if they come out evangelistic in their thinking and life, they will not only preserve this hill, but preserve the churches and all of our other institutions. Number three, the hard one, our Baptist family. Carol's presentation of Baptist principles begins with Christ as Lord. And Southwestern's founding systematic theologian, a student of Carroll, said the lordship of Jesus over each human person is the fundamental Baptist principle. And from this first principle of Christ's lordship flows the non-negotiable personal aspect of Baptist identity. Carroll wrote, the sole responsibility of decision and action rests directly on the individual's soul. Each one must give account of himself to God. Neither parent, nor government, nor church may usurp the prerogative of God as Lord of the conscience. God himself does not course the will. His people are volunteers, not conscripts. The Southwestern's founding presidents, faculty, and trustees thoroughly respected the human conscience. Disclosing the seminary charter and his desire for the faculty, Carroll stated flatly, Christian service must be voluntary, not legal, 
and must proceed from a motive of love. Our churches or our founding presidents repeatedly honored the faculty in their reports, encouraged them to serve their churches while teaching at the seminary, and defended them from scurrilous attacks. Carroll's constitutional regard for the dignity and worth of his faculty is a standing rebuke to unaccountable hierarchy in the Baptist Academy or anywhere else in a Southern Baptist Convention. Equality of persons is non-negotiable. As a pastor, I learned that the little girl who just got saved and baptized and was seven years old had as much a voice as someone who had been a Christian for 70 years and was the pastor of the church. Scarborough put it this way. With Baptists, the violation of a trained conscience enlightened by the word of God has been a high sin against heaven. Our denomination's first confession thus bears our seminary's imprint. The 1925 committee bypassed Southern's abstract of principles for Southwestern's New Hampshire confession as a starting point. Our confession was popular with the churches and lessened the Calvinist controversy. The Baptist faith and message added articles on freedom, evangelism, and missions. These reflect Southwestern's ethos. Working with E.Y. Mullen, Scarborough ensured a new article stated this, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrine and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. From the lordship of Christ over each person's free conscience unfold all other Baptist distinctives. These include, according to Carroll, regenerate church membership, the church is a spiritual body, the separation of church and state, the church is a particular congregation, and the church as a pure democracy with all members equal in governance. He went on to teach that a Baptist convention, state or national, must remain purely cooperative and advisory and must be composed of individuals, not churches. And Carroll exulted in this truth. There is no necessity for a hierarchy in order to promote harmony, secure unity of faith and discipline, and to obtain cooperation broad enough and strong enough to do anything God's people ought to do. This is God's order in the gospel of his son, and the order is itself a distinctive Baptist principle. Working from his long-studied love of the churches, the founding president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary hard-baked Baptist identity into the structures of this school. He saw, quote, the drift away from the simplicity of the gospel in Kentucky and ensured it would not happen in Texas. His successor had the help of Carroll's other friends, a Truett on the trustee board, and Gambrel and Barnes in the faculty to make sure the Baptist principles of liberty of conscience and pure congregational democracy shaped seminary governance. James Bruton Gambrell presided over the Southern Baptist Convention while serving on Southwestern's faculty. Gambrell said, cooperating Baptist agencies do not operate by federation, but by affiliation. Federation contradicts Baptist polity by limiting human freedom and restricting trustee authority. 
Gamble could serve simultaneously as FBC president and Southwestern faculty because Baptists have affiliate, not federal entities. Gamble would have blasted any attempt to control his or any other faculty voice as a violation of Baptist principles. Baptists have no pope, no cardinals, no synods. Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. Carroll taught this to his students in his home. A truant in Scarborough resided there for years at times. William Wright Barnes was the last student invited into the Carroll home. The Barnes set with our first president as he died. Barnes later worked closely with Scarborough. Barnes chaired the faculty, served as acting president during Scarborough's absence and functioned as registrar, librarian, and student disciplinarian. A careful church historian active in denominational life, Barnes coined the term presbogationalism to describe Baptists who were infatuated with elitism. Barnes's voice formed a choir for Baptist principles with Carol, Connor, and Gambrel, and Scarborough, Truett, and Mullins. Listen to what he said. Let our people return to the emphasis upon the voluntary principle in religious experience and in religious work. Let the Southern Baptist Convention and all of the other conventions be considered not ecclesiastical organizations composed of churches, but voluntary organizations composed of individuals who are affiliated together for a common missionary task. Let us forsake the presbogationalism that infests us from the local church through organized life into the Southern Convention and return to the congregational government that is yet our theory. In his safeguards of the seminary, Carroll explicitly solved the problem of encroaching theological heresy by maintaining, not compromising, Baptist principle. First, Carroll addressed the trustees. He noted the major problems of self-perpetuating trustee boards, of non-subscription, and of dependence upon one great personality. These stem from non-Baptist ecclesiologies. Carroll crafted several permanent laws, he called them, to ensure a healthy board. The trustees must be faithful members of regular Baptist churches, sign the seminary articles, and attend regularly and carefully to the seminary. The president is an ex officio member without the power to vote. Second, Carroll empowered the faculty to defeat infidelity by requiring they adopt Baptist principles in spirit and in structure. Reacting to the errors at Southern, Carroll believed solutions would be found in, quote, the concurrence of faculty and trustees after quiet and patient and fraternal conference. He invited faculty and trustees to meet jointly and reach practical unanimity when their seminary faced major decisions. Carroll disdained legalistic power-mongering. Instead, Carroll wanted Baptist institutions to adopt a family approach. Not a machine, but an organic life. He envisioned organic unity without envy or jealousy between the parts. Unity, he said, comes through a spirit of fostering care and a respectful structure of, quote, mediate control. 
Carol's charter also assigned permanent laws for the faculty. My brothers and sisters, listen to what Carol said was a permanent law. Ten of them. First, each shall be a member of a regular Baptist church. Second, each must subscribe to the articles of faith. Third, the president shall nominate and the trustees shall elect all full professors of the seminary and fix their salaries. The fourth law is important. The faculty, quote, on the nomination of the president may appoint tutors for special classes and may temporarily fill any vacancy in a professor's chair. The category of tutor akin to acting faculty or adjunct did not carry full faculty status. The category of professor's chair did. Southwestern began with faculty involvement in the hiring of colleagues. And I can tell you that nothing creates family better than when faculty are adopted as brothers and sisters. Carroll's fifth and sixth permanent laws for faculty concerned the registration of students and through faculty leadership, preparing reports for the board. Seventh, the articles of faith must be our New Hampshire confession. The eighth law prohibited the conferral of honorary degrees. Ninth, faculty have charge of the curriculum and all matters relating to order and discipline. They also enact rules and regulations conducive thereto. Finally, the faculty confer all degrees with trustee approval. Faculty with trustees, each under permanent laws, were supposed to work intimately together with the president as a family with Baptist democracy providing communal spirit and structure. The Southwestern's founders put these Baptist principles as expressed in Carroll's permanent laws into practice. When Carroll established the famous chair of fire, he wanted L.R. Scarborough, but he didn't say make it so. Carroll taught Baptists to be militant for reaching the lost, but he rejected military structure. Carroll consulted the faculty before adding anyone to their family. Consider the three leading faculty of our first century. In 1908, Carroll was ready to appoint Scarborough immediately, but the faculty believed novices, and Scarborough was a novice academically, should start in acting roles. With his excellent practical experience, yet in limited intellectual work, Scarborough must develop lectures prior to joining the faculty, they said. The Scarborough's influential writings on evangelism, by the way, ultimately originated in the faculty's wise requirement that he first mature and outline a course. In the official election letter delivered to Scarborough, Carroll explicitly signed it for faculty. In 1910, Carroll followed a similar process with Southwestern's founding systematic theologian, Walter Thomas Connor, whose shoes we in the systematic theology department fill. The idea to hire Connor did not come from the president, but the faculty. Connor became the, quote, theologian of Southwestern for its first half century. His profound teaching benefited from the wisdom displayed in faculty oversight. Connor called Southwestern's next greatest theologian, Garrett, to his role and many other prominent faculty. In 1913, Carroll followed the same proven process with Barnes. 
Barnes was first elected by the faculty, then later by the trustees. Historians are surprised by the founding faculty's vigorous role in seminary governance, but this was Carroll's plan. Our permanent laws say this Baptist faculty must have a strong say in election, governance, and discipline. A seminary which reflects its church's ecclesiological distinctives on the inside is better to teach its students to treasure those same distinctives on the outside. A Baptist seminary should act like a Baptist seminary. When delivering his famous charge to Scarborough about how to handle heresy, and Carroll defined a process which both preserves the individual professor's liberty of conscience and the community's spiritual democracy. And Carroll recognized distinct oversight roles for faculty, trustees, convention, and churches. He had a fourfold order. Missing is any hint that a president might make significant decisions for himself. He has the agency and power of his good and strong voice but he must use it with care for both the individual and the community. By the way, this is where great pastors come from too. They know how to lead people's hearts. And then they will want to do the Lord's will. Wary of empowering, in his words, one great personality, Carol said these words, if heresy ever comes in the teaching, take it to the trustees. No, that's not what he said. He said, take it to the faculty. And if they will not hear you and take prompt action, then take it to the trustees of the seminary. And if they will not hear you, take it to the convention that appoints the board of trustees. And if they will not hear you, take it to the great common people of our churches. You will not fail to get a hearing then. That's Carol telling Scarborough how to conduct his office. The Baptist safeguard at Southwestern Seminary included the faculty's first level responsibility for itself from election to discipline. And this fourfold structure established a strong sense of faculty ownership of Baptist identity that worked well for generations despite later centralizing efforts. Number four, protection from extinction. What of the generations who follow? Specifically, what is, what is our responsibility? And Garrett warned Baptists to protect from extinction their principles. Following Garrett, please hear the heart of a fellow Southwesterner regarding our generation. The president, faculty, trustees, staff, students, alumni, and churches of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary must advocate and preserve through oral and written instruction, through appropriate administrative action, and by personal passion and practical example, the following three aspects of our seminary's identity. Our evangelical faith identity, our passion for practical soul-winning Christianity, and our Baptist faith family identity. Three historic events demonstrate how to protect our identity from extinction. First, the faculty suffered turmoil through the modernizing of the third president. The faculty registered a sigh of relief 
for a return to the family approach by the fourth president. Some left under the third and then came back under the fourth because J. Howard Williams restored the Baptist spirit of Carroll in Scarborough. And Carroll had created a Baptist culture giving the faculty spiritual and structural responsibility through self-governance, followed by trustee convention and church oversight. Scarborough nursed that Baptist spirit and structure. Williams nursed the Baptist spirit back to health, but the Baptist structure was increasingly diminished through the century. Garrett concluded with a haunting question. Today's question, Garrett said, may be whether Baptists hold to and clearly affirm and practice their distinctives. This is a question not only for Southwesterners, but for all Southern Baptists. Will we recover our Christian priesthood as a Baptist family? Second, a very positive example of how the three distinctives work for our self-preservation came during the conservative resurgence, or if you don't like that terminology, the fundamentalist takeover. <laughs> the Peace Committee, elected by the SBC and chaired by Charles Fuller, examined the drift theologically in convention entities. That committee, composed of strong leaders from various sides, I knew some of these men, they, they were strong they concluded that the Fort Worth Seminary did not manifest the theological problems in Louisville, Wake Forest, and Kansas City. They even wrote it up and the report was adopted. How did Southwestern avoid that problem? Southwestern's soul-winning passion on the one hand and its Baptist spirit, on the other, enabled her to remain largely evangelical in theology, unlike elsewhere. Third, a negative example, encourages vigilance in preserving our passion for soul-winning practical Christianity. When Carroll assembled the founding faculty, he chose a well-known Baptist church historian, Albert Henry Newman, I want to thank our librarian, Jill Botticelli, for uh, this photo. Uh, she notes that actually it's, uh, the portrait is not in good shape, and I'm sure she could use some donations everywhere in the library, but this would be one of them. Albert Henry Newman was a proponent of Baptist principles and an advocate for, quote, vital evangelical Christianity and an accomplished academic. W.R. Estep says that we got our strong academic uh, structure from uh, Newman. However, Newman admitted that he uh, lacked one essential quality. W.R. Estep says that he pointed out and emphasized the fact that he was only a quiet scholar and teacher and that he was lacking in the religious enthusiasm that many of the Texas brethren possessed and that seemed well nigh indispensable for a theological professor in a Texas institution. Later, uh, when the faculty under Newman's deanship lessened the practical orientation of the new seminary, Carroll decided it was time to let Newman finish the year. Newman returned to Baylor agreeing that his departure was best. He loved Southwestern and wished her well. 
And that's why, even though he left, he donated his portrait here. These examples encourage us, I believe, to be diligent to preserve each of Southwestern Seminary's threefold identity. Each strand is important. Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, A cord of three strands is not easily broken. I believe Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary will not break, but strengthen as we recover these three necessary strands of our identity. Number one, our evangelical faith. Number two, our practical emphases upon soul winning, missions, preaching, teaching, worship, counseling, all the things that we do. And number three, our Baptist family ways. Father, revive your seminary. You own this place. You've owned it since 1908 and 115 years. Amen.